You're listening to The Voice. Benvenuti a Leuven. Leuven, you Tabropa Jawit Leuven. Bienvenue à Leuven. Willkommen in Leuven. Leuven에 오신 걸 환영합니다. Welcome in Leuven. Hello and uh, welcome back to the show. You are listening to The Voice on the radio. This is Dashan. Today I'm also alone and uh, this will be a short introduction because we have a substantial interview to follow in which I will be discussing Spinoza uh, with a good friend of mine, Sip, and especially focusing on the idea that there are two ways to overcome solitude or the aloneness one might feel. And those two ways are, on the one hand, through interpersonal relation, so through your friends and uh, love you have for people around you. That's one way to go beyond yourself, go beyond your own body. And another way is to what Spinoza calls to live under the aspect of eternity. So another way to overcome solitude is precisely to try to grasp the eternal in our temporal experience. Please stay tuned to find out how we tackle this question. I was quite convinced by the argument and uh, I went to the beach uh, last week just by myself to the Belgian coast, to Ostende. And uh, when I was walking alone, I think about the interview that I did with Sip. Then I thought to myself, it is true that I'm not walking alone. Many people have walked on this beach and have thought many things. And the ocean is the same from past to the future. Even though at that moment in time, I'm alone. But in my awareness, in my understanding, I'm not. So I find this message very empowering. And I hope that can also empower many people who are alone in all sense of the word. I have a friend who is a fan of Spinoza and she's in quarantine because she has to travel. And I just wish if she listens to this podcast, to this episode, then she can feel that I'm sending my love to her. And by extension, to anybody who is in a similar situation, who I do not know, But in a way, if you sympathize with the message of this interview, we have already known each other, although we do not know each other in person. But that's already a good starting point and a starting point of uh, friendship. So I'll leave the intro and play the first song, La Joyosa, and stay tuned and we will be back with Spinoza and his ethics.
welcome back. I'll let the guest today to introduce and explain why he chose the music you just listened. Seep, please take away. Thank you, Dashan. We were just listening to a song by a early 18th century French composer called Jean-Philippe Rameau. And uh, yeah, Rameau wrote this song called La Joyeuse, the title, The Joyful La Joyeuse, I think uh, captures the theme of Spinoza's ethics quite well. Perfect. Indeed. So today we are talking about Spinoza. Spinoza is one of the most radical and influential thinkers from the 17th century. He was the son of Jewish Portuguese immigrants and was raised in Amsterdam. He was expelled from the Jewish community in 1656 at the age of 23 for, quote, monstrous deeds and abominable heresies, probably referring to Spinoza's rejection of the key doctrines of Judaism, such as the immortality of the soul and the conventional understanding of God. Instead, he spent the rest of his life in the countryside of the western part of the Netherlands, grinding lenses and writing philosophy. He died in 1677 at the age of 44 due to the dust generated by grinding affecting his lungs. His magnum opus, The Ethics, was published posthumously. The ideas contained in this book is the topic of our conversation today. Together with me to appreciate and try to understand Spinoza and his ethics is my friend Sip, who is now a graduate student at the Institute of Philosophy in Leuven. Sip, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dashan. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. Yes, me too. So for me, one of the fascinating features of Spinoza is that although he writes in Latin, the dominant language for philosophy since the Roman Republic, and especially uh, the, this language has been saturated by the concepts of uh, Catholic theologians in the medieval period. So despite writing in Latin, Spinoza has for himself the content that belongs to that of the early modern period of scientific advancement of Newton and Galileo and a different political climate, that of commercial and religious freedom, especially in the Netherlands of the time. So his project is to speak of new ideas in the old language. That is one of the things that makes Spinoza difficult, but also valuable to read. And he himself is keenly aware of the difficulty of this kind of project. And in order to prepare his readers to have more willingness to listen to what he has to say, he starts with what he thinks to be the most prevalent and the fundamental prejudice of his day. And his ethics, to a large extent, is to point out that prejudice, to reject it, and to offer an alternative. So I think uh, it is always useful to know who and what position the philosopher is writing against, in order to understand them. This prejudice that I'm talking about is a kind of a teleological thinking. Telos in Greek means purpose or aims. Teleological thinking is to think in terms of purpose or means and end. In a religious context, it means to think of the world as made by the God for certain purposes and understanding of the world means to find out the corresponding purpose of each thing. For example, when the plague outbroke in 1665 and 1666 in Europe, 
one of the questions people might ask is why God allows it to happen. And that means to find out what purpose the plague has. Spinoza, however, thinks this is a wrong question to even ask. See, my question is, why does Spinoza think that? How does he propose us to, to understand causes and effects, if not as means and ends? Yeah, I think that Spinoza would reject the question of why or what purpose does the, did the plague have for similar reasons as why we would reject that question nowadays. Right. Spinoza believes in the power of science, who is, who is very much affected, uh, influenced by the scientific revolution uh, that, was, that was happening and that was bubbling in, his, in, in Europe at his time, especially in Amsterdam. He had a, Spinoza had a very close correspondence with many scientists. And this was the paradigm or the model of thinking that he followed, uh, which is the model, the, the model of thinking that we follow nowadays, where we understand nature as basically universal system of causes and effects that goes on forever, that is infinitely complex, and uh, that, is, that is ruled by a absolute necessity. This kind of scientific, naturalistic, deterministic approach to to nature is what, of course, would lead Spinoza to reject the question of uh, what purpose does the plague have? Uh, why did the plague happen? The plague, just like any other physical body, occurs because of the natural uh, causes and effects. We shouldn't be worried about what ulterior or hidden meaning there is to something like a, like a plague. But Spinoza does have something to say about this tendency that we have to think in terms of purposes, in terms of ends and means to ends, what you call teleological thinking. Spinoza says that this kind of teleological thinking is a tendency that comes from basically the structure of our consciousness, the structure of human consciousness. He calls, he calls this a prejudice, as you, as you called it as well, the prejudice of thinking and here I have a, uh, a passage from the appendix to book one mm -hmm. that I think um, is fitting and uh, that describes the prejudice and also describes why we have this natural tendency to view things in terms of means and ends. Right. So let me read it out. Mm -hmm. This again is from the appendix to book one of the ethics. And I quote, that men commonly suppose that all natural things act as men do on account of an end. Indeed, they, the people that hold this prejudice, maintain as certain that God himself directs all things to some certain end. For they say that God has made all things for man and man that he might worship God. And then a couple of lines after that, he says, it will be sufficient here if I take as a foundation what everyone must acknowledge. He is now accounting for why we have this tendency as human beings to think of things in terms of means and ends. He says that all men are born ignorant, born ignorant of the causes of things 
and that they all want to seek their own advantage and they're conscious of this appetite. From these assumptions, so from the fact that we are ignorant of the causes of things and that we want to seek our own advantage by pursuing our appetite, from these assumptions, it follows first that men think themselves free because they are conscious of their volitions and their appetite and do not think even in their dreams of the causes by which they are disposed to wanting and willing because they are ignorant of those causes. It follows second that men act always on account of an end, namely on account of their advantage, which they want. All right, so that's, that's a long quote and it has a lot. And I think that what we should take from it that human beings, just like any other living being, are driven by an appetite, are driven by a striving, you could say, to fulfill needs. At the same time, we are conscious of this appetite. This consciousness of our appetites is what Spinoza will later define as our desire. From this basic structure of desire, Spinoza says that three things follow. The first one is that, yes, we are conscious of our desires, but we are ignorant normally of all the causes that precede those desires. We don't know why we pursue uh, the desires we have. Mm -hmm. We might have some vague idea of why I'm doing what I'm doing, but for Spinoza, we can never have a complete, a full understanding of the infinite causes and, and effects yeah. that led to me wanting this thing yeah. at this moment. Well, not even think about, think about there could be causes for our desire, right? We don't really go back and think about why those desires are caused because we are fixated on um, trying to pursue it. Indeed, indeed. And this is the second point. So we ignore our causes and we focus on the, op on the, the, on the desired object. Because we have this focus on what we want and because we ignore the causes this, that lead us to wanting it, we think ourselves free, undetermined by preceding causes and free to want that thing. There is, an, there is a famous, uh, there's a very famous passage from the ethics where Spinoza says, we don't desire something because it is good, but we call it good because we desire it. That it is the structure of our, of our desire that leads us to, well, yes, ignoring the causes of behind those desires, taking ourselves as free. And the third one, which concerns what we were talking about before, it leads us to thinking in terms of ends, right? Because right. we think in terms of our desired objects of the end of our advantage. And mm -hmm. we think therefore in terms of what are the means in order to attain that end. This kind of thinking, we then project onto other things. We then project onto nature. And we think that all things in nature, just like ourselves also are driven by a certain goal or by a certain end. Mm -hmm. And then we extrapolate this anthropomorphic uh, projection onto nature, but then ultimately we extrapolate it onto God. Right. We conceive of a God that is a creator who has a will, who has a desire, just like we do in, to create the world and to make things uh, happen and to make things in a good way. So can we say that Spinoza want to shift this question of what is good, which focuses on the object of desire, to 
what causes us to desire things in the first place. So shift from the object of desire to the faculty of desire. Indeed, all things, not only human beings, but all things as being essentially defined by a certain striving to persevere in existence. So a certain force to remain, you could say. And this he calls the conatus. The conatus is a word in Latin that means it's striving to persevere. And this striving in human, in the human case, in the case of human experience and human consciousness is our appetite. And because we have consciousness of it, consciousness of it, it is our desire. So our desire is ultimately this conatus, the striving to persevere. So the, so the key word is the consciousness part and the appetite part, uh, because yes. the appetite is the typical example of an affect uh, for Spinoza. So the fact that we are aware of what we are feeling uh, motivates us to act in some way. So, uh, so let me then ask you about uh, the idea of affects, or we can also call it emotions or passions or feelings mm -hmm. that we experience mm -hmm. in life. Now, let me quote a passage from the preface to book three, which, mm -hmm. uh, in which uh, Spinoza explains why he wants to talk about affects. So here's a quote. Most of those who have written about the affects seems to treat them not as natural things, which follow the common laws of nature, but as things which are outside nature. Indeed, they seem to conceive man in nature as a domain within a domain. For they believe that man disturbs rather than follows the order of nature, that he has absolute power over his actions, and that he is determined only by himself. And instead, Spinoza thinks that we, or he at least, should, quote, consider human actions and appetites just as if they were a question of lines planes and bodies, because nature is always the same and its virtue and power of acting are everywhere one and the same. So the way of understanding the nature of anything of what, whatever kind must be the same. Okay, so in this extraordinary passage, Spinoza first rejects the idea that there's anything supernatural uh, about human emotions as if they belong to some private uh, inner space that no laws of the outside apply. Instead, if we consider the causes of our emotions as part of nature, then there's really no fundamental difference between psychological questions and questions of geometry. Yeah, I think it is important that we dwell a bit on what Spinoza means by nature. We already said that Spinoza has in a way, a similar understanding of nature as we do. That is, he understands nature as physical nature, which is ruled by eternal laws. But there is something deeper to this Spinozistic understanding of nature. And that is, well, first of all, that he calls this nature God. And I think this is something that probably the listeners have already know, Spinoza is what is called a pantheist. Spinoza equates nature and God in the formula in Latin, which is Deus sive natura, God or nature. So God and nature are the same. And God is, for Spinoza, an absolutely infinite being. It is the only being that is. And because it is absolutely infinite, 
God expresses himself in an infinity of ways. Two of these ways of expressing himself are in physical nature. And this is what is what Spinoza calls the attribute of extension. And then a second way in which uh, God expresses himself is in what Spinoza calls the attribute of thought. So God or nature is not just physical nature in, in the sense of brute nature, yeah. but God or nature is also an infinitely intelligent being. And these are the two attributes that we as human beings have access to. But God, because he's absolutely infinite, says Spinoza, must have infinite attributes which we don't have access to. Okay, I have two questions. Why does he claim God is infinite? Another question is this idea of expression. When a flower blossoms in spring, why, why should I say the flower expresses anything? What kind of expression are we talking about? Yeah, these are, these are interesting questions. The first one concerning infinity. Spinoza, in the, begin, in the very beginning of the ethics, I would say in the first 10 propositions of book one, which is called Of God, there he deduces in a very rigorous geometrical way that there can only be one substance. There can only be one thing that is independent, that is in itself. Then uh, this is a big, big difference with the scholastic tradition, which is originally an Aristotelian tradition that thought that substance, a substance was just a thing, was just an individual yeah, uh, like you thing in nature, like you and me and the dog and the tree, etc. These yeah. are all substances because they're independent things. But Spinoza takes, as you said in the, in the introduction, very, very well, he takes this, this scholastic concept of substance and he says, no, no, no. If this substance is defined as an independent thing, then if we really take this idea of independence to its logical limit, then there can only be one, which is, say, the whole. And this one whole, by virtue of being a whole, must be limitless. It cannot, there can can be nothing outside of it that limits it. Therefore, it must be logically absolutely infinite. And um, um, remind me of the second question. About uh, expression. Yes, yes. That's the, I think that's a very interesting question. And expression, we could talk all day about this, but basically expression means self-determination. It means being the cause of yourself. Substance, of course, as the absolutely infinite whole is purely infinitely expressive because it is um, in everything that exists always the cause of itself. It is the causa sui in Latin, always the cause of itself. And this notion of expression that essentially defines, identifies substance, Spinoza will then use in order to make sense of human beings. Mm -hmm. And he will use, we could even say this notion of expression as a ethical and scientific model or standard for us to strive for. But we will get to this later, I think. So, okay, great. So for the universe or the whole or the cosmos for the world to express itself means for it to be what it is. Exactly. Right. And, uh, And luckily for the universe, it can't be otherwise. It is what it is. It always expresses itself. Mm -hmm. but maybe for some things like us 
mm -hmm. we would express ourselves wrongly or we would mm -hmm. we would not express ourselves we would repress ourselves maybe so that's that's the problem that we have uh, as human beings which is both a curse but maybe also a blessing i would say but we will, we will talk about that uh, after the intermission i think for the intermission i picked a song by the jazz pianist uh, Thelonious Monk, and the song is called Body and Soul. Well, the title is appropriate because we were gonna, we're gonna be talking about basically the union of body and soul according to Spinoza. And besides the title, I think the music itself in a way captures the dynamics uh, that Spinoza is trying to describe uh, when he talks about the ethics and the ways in which um, the mind can become a source of active ethics uh, and try them for, therefore to fight uh, the passions and to conquer the passions. Welcome back. So, and then let's talk about the passivity and uh, activity distinction. How do I judge whether I'm doing something passively or actively? This is basically uh, where the affects come in, specifically joy and sadness, the basic affects. Passive affects are passive because they are the effects of something external acting upon us. So say, and therefore passive in the sense that they are uh, receptive to an external cause that has an impact upon our bodies and our minds. Um, so for example, someone stand, stands on my, on my foot and uh, I feel a certain pain, which Spinoza will say is a form of sadness. And this, Pain is defined as a passion, a passive affect, 
in, in this very precise and technical sense that something external, namely someone stepping on me, has caused an effect upon me. And this is, this is uh, the model of a passion, of a passive effect. And Spinoza would then say that most things in nature are passive, are being led by external causes, just like uh, a leaf, you know, a, a, a dead leaf on, on the ground that is being blown by the wind. You know, this is an example that, that, uh, that Schopenhauer uses, I think, in order to describe um, this effect that Spinoza has in mind of passivity. When we are living passively, like most things in the, in the world, we are like a dead leaf on the ground being blown here and there by, by the wind. And when we are uh, living passively, says Spinoza, when we are living merely according to the effects that external causes have on us, then we are living inexpressively. We are living unfreely. And then this is what the challenge is, the ethical challenge, but also the philosophical challenge, the scientific challenge will be to convert our passive mode of existence into an active mode of existence. And this is where ideas come in. This is where the forming of ideas comes in. Great. So we can say when the leaf is blown by the wind, the leaf is not expressing its essence. It is mm -hmm. expressing the essence of the wind. But then, of course, the wind can also be blown by something else. Then it goes all the way back to the very beginning. Okay, good. So, and uh, most of the time, we the way we experience things is just like the leaves. Mm -hmm. If we don't have ideas to aid us. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, good. So now we come to this key moment of this uh, episode, I would say, um, because now the meaning of ideas and how to judge ideas becomes the task at hand. And I know, Sip, you have been working on this uh, for a long time. I'll let you take the floor and explain to us what is an idea and probably more importantly, this judgment of an idea being adequate or inadequate mm -hmm. and then how to convert the inadequate ideas to the adequate ones. Yes. Okay. I think that uh, we can start by talking about a confused idea. What is a confused idea or an inadequate idea? Uh, Spinoza will join or will uh, make sense of passions in terms of inadequate or confused ideas. And I think the example that you used uh, the, or the way that you reconfigured my example is very good. The leaf, if it had a mind, would have completely inadequate ideas, completely confused ideas in the sense that um, its ideas will be merely impressions of the wind that is acting upon it. So it will have an idea of the wind but this idea will be, of course, an incomplete, com uh, incomplete idea, an inadequate idea, as Spinoza says, a confused and mutilated idea. Why? Because it cannot know the origin of that wind. Maybe it could, the tidal waves. You know, if it's a particularly intelligent dead leaf, it could know that the tidal waves are uh, what cause the, the wind to go up or something like that. And then this is the wind that it presses 
itself upon the uh, upon the leaf. And then you could go on and say, what causes a tidal wave? Maybe the movement of the moon. And then the movement, what causes the movement of the moon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it is impossible for Spinoza to have adequate ideas, complete ideas about things that happen in duration, about things that happen in time. It is impossible to have an adequate idea of this process, according to Spinoza, because there is an infinite chain of causes that, uh, that is behind it. And our mind is not infinite like God's, but it is finite. Okay, how then do we have adequate ideas is the question. And this is where uh, activity comes in. Spinoza says in the scolium to proposition 29 of book two, book two is on the mind. I say expressly that the mind has not an adequate, but only a confused and mutilated knowledge of itself, of its own body and of external bodies, so long as it perceives things from the common order of nature. That is, so long as it is determined externally from fortuitous, that is random encounters with things to regard this or that, and not so long as it is determined internally from the fact that it regards a number of things at once to understand their agreements, differences, and oppositions. For so often as it is dis disposed internally in this or another way, then it regards things clearly and distinctly as I shall show below. So here we see very clearly what the difference between inadequate ideas and adequate ideas are. An inadequate idea is an idea that we form by perceiving something in our experience, as uh, Spinoza says, from the common order of nature, from the fortuitous or random encounters with things. That is, in our day-to-day -day experience, we perceive things and the ideas that we form of these, uh, of these perceptions are bound to be inadequate ideas because they come from an external cause. And then, therefore, and the affects that are um, produced from these inadequate ideas are bound to be passions, passive affects, receptive. On the other hand, those ideas that we form through an internal determination, as he says here, and that is by an internal act whereby we affirm agreements, that is commonalities in nature or differences in nature, oppositions in nature, ideas that are formed by an, an active, internal, internally caused mental affirmation, these will be adequate ideas. Why? Because these ideas have us as their cause and not the infinite chain of causes of the common order of nature. And this will be then the, the challenge for Spinoza to find a way for us, a method, you could say, to form adequate ideas. What, the question is, what should we affirm about things in nature, what should we affirm with our minds through a mental act um, that can give us um, a clear and distinct concept? And this is where the theory that interests me and that I'm working on comes in, this is the theory of the common notions. Uh, Spinoza says that when the mind, through an internal act, affirms those properties that bodies have in common with themselves and with its own body, then that notion, that idea, which he calls a common notion, will be an adequate idea. 
It will be the result of an internal act of the mind, an internal act that affirms a certain agreement in nature, a certain commonality of nature. And of course, that just like inadequate ideas have as an effect passions, passive affects, adequate ideas, common notions will have as an effect active affects, actions. Okay, let, let's uh, use me as example. Let's say I fall in love and I know it is uh, a love because my feeling was very strong. So I don't know why I feel it very strongly. I can't help it. So now I'm in this passive state of being affected and I am conscious of it. So I know I love this person. And then I might do something with regard to my desire. I might, you know, ask them out or anything. But if I don't know why, I'm still acting passively. So how do I find an adequate idea which explains to me my love for this person mm -hmm. in a way that you have just described? Mm -hmm. And more specifically, what you said about knowledge in duration and knowledge in eternity, that fascinated mm -hmm. me. How am I supposed to understand my temporal experience in terms of an eternal ideas? Yeah. Okay. So two questions. The first one, how do we go about this process of forming adequate ideas from our everyday experience, just like falling in love with someone? What is crucial is what is at the origin of an experience of love is a passive joy. As you were saying, there is a joy that is passive, a, a joy, an increase in the, in the body's power of action and the mind's power of thinking, and the increase in conatus that is caused by an external uh, body, in this case, a girl or a boy that you like. Now, Spinoza then thinks very, very meticulously about what this means, the fact that there is a passive joy. A passive joy for Spinoza, just like the love that you were experiencing, that you were describing, can only occur through a property that is common to you and to that external body. Only through a common property can my power of action and my power of thinking be elevated. That is, only through a common property can I experience a joyful affect. Okay, we have something here, says Spinoza. The, the first thing we must do then is to maximize our passive joys. Accumulate as many passive joys as we can. Why? Because then we will live in a way that we experience other bodies through those properties that they have in common with my body. For example, the girl that you like, you experience being with her because there is something in common between you two that produces you a joy, produces her a joy probably as well. But it, we are still at the passive level. Second step is once we have accumulated many joys, Spinoza says, now the task of the mind is to understand that passive joy. How do we understand that passive joy? By looking and affirming that common property that you and the external body share. This, affirm this affirmation of a common property is what we called before a common notion. And uh, in this case, when you're talking about someone you like and, the com and affirming a common property 
between that person and you, um, you will, yes, obtain a common notion, an adequate idea, but it will be a non-universal one. It will be a very local adequate idea that in this case corresponds only to you and that other body. And then, but then the question could still be, why is this an idea of this common property, an adequate idea? Um, and it has to do precisely um, with this mental affirmation, with this internal act of the mind by which it says, yes, this is me, this is me. That is, uh, and, and, and why is that an adequate idea? Because it has the mind and the body as a cause. It is expressive, as we've defined it before, an adequate idea by being a self-caused idea, whereby the mind affirms a common property, that is where that, whereby the mind says, for example, in an encounter of love, this is me, this is me, then this idea will be internally caused, self-caused, and therefore it will be expressive of itself. Just like substance by being self-caused, infinitely self-caused is infinitely expressive, we therefore become a little bit like substance, a little bit like God, because we have been, we have become the, the cause of our own actions by forming a concept, in this case, a common notion, affirming a common property between my body and another body. I think that's beautiful. Then I have two questions. Uh, is this idea of being common, uh, whether in the common of property or common of notion? How do I look? Let, let, I mean, people say that a lot, right? They, oh, we are, we are very similar or we, we match or we... But then what, what, what exactly is it at the level at which we are common? Uh, so that's the first question. And the second question is, how common does it have to be in order for me to affirm it? What is the sufficient condition for me to affirm this common notion to be mine? And people are often quite scared of their desires, I would say. They can't commit. They, they, they can't affirm it. Spinoza would say the task is first and foremost to acquire joys, to live in a joyful way, in, in, in a way where we experience other bodies through what they have in common with us. But as you, as you say, how do we then go from experiencing passive joys to knowing what these commonalities really are? And Spinoza would say, well, you have to basically do the exercise in understanding your own joy. You have to think about it. And it doesn't come from one day to the next. We have to ponder upon our joys. We have to ponder upon the way that we experience joy. We will slowly discover what it is that defines us and therefore what it is that brings us joy. Because of course that the understanding and common property, what that means is to understand ourselves, right? Because we understand a property that we share with someone else or with something else. So in understanding, and this is the beautiful part about Spinoza, in understanding our relationships with things or with people, this is the way through which we come to understanding ourselves. I can give a, maybe a personal example. I go on walks here behind my house. There is a forest. I've been, doing, I've, I've been doing this since since lockdown, since I'm back home. I have figured out that when I go on a walk for maybe an hour or, or an hour and a half, I feel good afterwards. And I've been doing it now for, well, for a couple of months. 
every other day I go on a walk. But now I've done the exercise, hypothetically, I'm not saying that I actually did this, but you could say that I do the exercise of understanding what it means for me to enjoy those walks. And then I, I think deeper and I say, what is at stake in those, in those walks? What is happening when I go on those walks that I, in a way, connect with? And what it is that causes this joy? And then I think, hmm, I'm listening to music most of the time. I'm listening, I'm listening to music that I really like. I am also looking at uh, uh, trees and, 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 and wildlife around me. Therefore, I, when I think about it, I go on another walk tomorrow i go on another walk next week and then another walk and then i figure out that it is this whole composition of bodies of my music of the animals of the trees of the farms of my neighbors this whole composition of things that produces in me this joy now how do i transform this then into an adequate idea how do i form a common notion simply by the sort of vague act of affirming it, saying I should go on walks, you know, because they're good for me, because they make me happy. That would be good enough. But in my view, and this is what I'm trying to explore in, in, in my project, what producing an adequate idea, a common notion of this kind in this context would mean comes closer to an artistic act rather than a scientific act, rather than it comes closer to the experience of a painter who goes on walks in the countryside and figures out one day that there is something about that sunset, about the way that the light hits on the mill, on the windmill, and the way that it hits on the plains and everything, goes back the next day, sees it again, goes back the next day, and then one day he just feels, I have to paint this. I must paint this. Goes back and, bam, paints it in the moment. You could, I think that... Um, such an act, such an aesthetic act or act of, of, of creation is what would come closest to what Spinoza means when he talks about uh, common notions in this local sense. And, uh, but then when we're talking about more universal common notions, then yes, we're doing something more like science. But when we're talking about this at this local level, at the level of my own experience, at the level of going on walks, for example, and enjoying those walks at the level of experiencing my friends, etc., forming common notions, I think, comes closer to what an aesthetic or artistic act would be. Okay, I can ask two questions. So you are not alone in this project of affirming yourself. Exactly. Um, you have to affirm what nature has given you. You have to affirm the connection which is already there uh, that you have felt. So uh, we can talk about the conflict between people, let's say, mm -hmm. between the things that you want to affirm and other people want to deny. And a classic example would be uh, like, let's say, uh, unrequited love. I think that would be a classic example of the things that you want to affirm and other people didn't, didn't think there is. And that's different from the walking experience because as an artist, you, you have power over the, the object. Yeah. But in a, in a human relation, you don't have that. You or at least you shouldn't have that. It would be wrong to have that. Indeed. The other case is the idea of temporal and the eternal. If the ideal of affirmation of life relies on eternal sense of the idea, but we know very well that we are uh, temporal beings. So the question is, how do we 
get to is an eternal idea a, a, a regulative idea for us so so our, our understanding can go as far as uh, uh, to to make it more stable and as if it is eternal but then you can never say for sure about about your life because you will always have new uh, affects so mm -hmm. that it disrupts your uh, stable understanding of ideas which you take to be eternal so those are two vulnerabilities vulnerable to the other and then vulnerable to the future yeah all right concerning the other concerning relations with other people we have to as you said differentiate these types of encounters uh with encounters we have with things with uh with, for example, the bodies that I encounter when I go on a walk. This kind of encounter, this kind of experience is a radically different experience than one with a person. Therefore, the, type, the way in which we affirm these two different kinds of experiences are different. In the case of my uh, walk in the, in the forest, there I am, as you said, conquering that experience by understanding it, by creating a concept corresponding to it in maybe um, writing a poem about it or making a painting of it. I, in a way, take that experience and I perform a, a act of conquest. Uh, on the other hand, in the case of uh, a friend or a loved one, something different happens. It is a different kind of composition that takes place. Why? Because my body and my mind become parts of a bigger whole. So I enter into a relation uh, with a friend, for example, and I think that we all experience this with, with good friends, for example, in a conversation with a good friend. It is as if my mind and my body have become parts of a body and mind of two. Mm -hmm. And... It is as if this composition has um, created a bigger body and a bigger mind. And this is, this is the way, I think, in which we should understand relations uh, with, uh, with other human beings. As once we enter them, it is through this common property that we share that we are able to perform a larger whole. And then the question, of course, is, how do we then form a concept or a common notion of this? Is it like in the other case that we conquer it by understanding it? And I would say for now, I would say it is complicated, but I think it is sufficient for us to at least have some sort of grasp of that type of composition to affirm that friendship and say this friendship is good because we create this in common. When we are together, something happens, something occurs something new emerges. And the same you could say about a lover. Something occurs that, that makes me want to be with that person. Because precisely because we have something in common, we in a way perform, create a larger whole. And then concerning the second one, the second uh, vulnerability, as you called it, between um, our existence, our experience in time, as beings who have a past, present, and future on the one hand, and as, on the other hand, our experience of, of eternity, that is, because this, this is something that we didn't really go deep into, but for Spinoza, adequate ideas, common notions, 
are ideas of eternal properties of things. And uh, yes, there is a tension between the way in which we live in, in duration, in time, and the way in which we live when we create adequate ideas, when we have concepts, because these concepts are operating at an eternal plane, or they capture something in us that belongs to an eternal plane. So yes, we are in a way coming back and forth between our existence in, in time and our existence, as Spinoza would say, in the intellect, which is the existence in eternity. And I think basically what, what we could say about this is that um, it is a long process. It is a long process whereby we try to accumulate, as, as we said before, passive joys. We accumulate joys. We affirm common properties. And we accumulate, therefore, common notions. We accumulate ideas uh, that are eternal. And as this process go on, goes on and on and on, we will experience the world more and more according to our common notions. And more and more, we will then be thinking according to properties that are eternal. And eventually, we will fill up ourselves with these ideas of eternal properties. We will fill up our minds with them. Our body will be acting according to them. So we, in a way, transform our experience into a kind of eternal experience, or as Spinoza says, an experience under the aspect of eternity. Experience sub specie eternitatis, this very famous Latin expression that Spinoza uses. And this means essentially that we are transforming our bodies and our minds in such a way that they operate at, an, uh, at the eternal level of things. And therefore, you could say, once we die, what dies of us is a very, very small fraction because what lived in the end was something, was a body and a mind operating at an eternal level. So in a way we conquer time. And that experience would be experienced by future people who Indeed. have shared you, even exactly. though they never met you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So you could say, what happens then, what happens then when, when you die? Uh, what does eternity really mean? Of course, eternity doesn't mean immortality for Spinoza. It doesn't mean that, uh, that if we live according to our eternal ideas, uh, our common notions, we will, um, we will live forever. No, 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 not at all. It just means that what lived when we die, what lived was me, my body, my mind, under the aspect of eternity, according to its eternal properties. Um, and this then, you could say, is also what stays in the minds of others, in the ideas of others about us. Uh, mm -hmm. And this, in a way, is how eternity, you could argue, eternity becomes immortality. Immortality in the sense that, our, that we persist after our death in the minds of others, precisely because we lived according, we lived expressively, we lived according to our eternal, eternal properties. And that's what sticks, that's what sticks after our death in the minds of, of others. But I mean, this is speculative, maybe a little far-fetched, but I think this is how you could maybe approach the question of, uh, right. of, of, of after death. Because, because at, at least then we can say, we don't live alone. 
we have lived somehow a common life. Well, both by living with our friends, but also living under the aspect of those knowledge that is eternal. Because both friendship and eternity goes beyond your aloneness, goes beyond your own body. You consider a different body a part of this common body. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And, and I think that these two are actually one and the same, ultimately. Because when you live according, when you live with friends, when you live uh, a life where you enjoy your friends, where, you're, where your encounters in general are of joy, and not only of joy, but of, um, but of understanding, where you understand why you have friendships with certain people, where you understand wh why you live the way you live, then in virtue of this understanding that you have of your own life, of your own relationships, of the compositions that you've formed with others, because of this understanding, you can say that you have achieved a certain level of eternity. So these two relations, on the one hand, constructing joyful relations and living sub specie eternitatis, living in, in, on the eternal plane of things, these two are intimately connected. You could even argue that they mean the one and the same thing. I think that's, that's a perfect end to this um, uh, episode, Sib. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Nassim. Thank it was a lot much. of fun. Okay, uh, we will end our episode with symphony number nine, The New World. Please enjoy. <laughs>